Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hello and welcome to Book Rising, our podcast. I'm so thrilled to have Veronique Tajo joining us today, a truly prolific writer, poet and artist who writes primarily in French. Veronique was born in Paris, but grew up in Abidjan in Ivory Coast. She also studied in Abidjan and in Paris, eventually earning a PhD in African-American literature and civilization. She's had a run as an academic, teaching and researching at the University of Abidjan, as well as at Wits University in South Africa. I first encountered Veronique Tajo's work when I learned that she was part of a group of nine writers from various parts of Africa who went to Rwanda in the aftermath of the 1994 genocide and came together to bear witness and to insist on an obligation to write about what happened. Here she produced L'Ombre Dibana, Voyage Jusqu'au bout de Rwanda, which is Imana's shadow travels to the heart of Rwanda. And that's just that was just one of her works that I started out uh, reading. Um, but she's she has an incredible amount that she has produced. Three volumes of poetry, six novels, 10 children's books, many of which she has illustrated herself. And we just read her award-winning book in the Company of Men, which is about Ebola at our book club. And I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you for joining us, Veronique. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Bhakti. Of course, it's, it's our honor. Yes, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Veronique, you're in uh, London at the moment. Uh, and I will, you know, let's see what we can say, because you have such a wide range as an artist and such a diverse career. You're a poet, novelist, academic. You're a painter who illustrates your children's books. And this makes you very hard to pin down because often when we think about writers, we are often habituated to think about, uh, you know, their one or maybe two nationalities. So maybe you can tell us a bit about your biography, your childhood, and the sort of give us a general arc that have led to the circumstances that make you this great amalgam of identities today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, um, first, uh, I was born, as you said earlier, I was born in Paris of an Ivorian father and a French mother. Um, So already, you know, right from my birth, I I had this duality. Uh, Then before independence, uh, my father decided to take uh, his young family back to his country, to Côte d'Ivoire. Uh, my brother was about three years old. I was uh, one. And um, so I was uh, brought up in, in, in Côte d'Ivoire. And as I said, I was uh, very aware that I possessed uh, two cultures. Uh, but being being... Uh, in Côte d'Ivoire, growing up in Côte d'Ivoire uh, during my very formative years, uh, Africa is my home and therefore most of my references and preoccupations and questions and issues are, are grounded in, uh, in Africa, in West Africa and in Africa in, in, in general. Um, concerning poetry, I was kind of naturally drawn to poetry as a form of expression that suited my temperament. 
I remember my brother was more interested in, I don't know, um, uh, novels and music. And mm. I was fairly introvert, I guess. So I, 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 would, I would stay in my corner and read poetry. It just spoke to me uh, strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, I also decided to study English at the department of Abidjan University. And after my BA, I went on to do a doctorate at the Sorbonne, Paris 4. Uh, and uh, then uh, later on, I furthered my uh, research uh, with a Fulbright scholarship at uh, Howard University in Washington, D.C. Then I decided to uh, go back to Côte d'Ivoire and I went to teach English in a school in the far north of um, Côte d'Ivoire. Okay, I'll say Côte d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast. It apparently is Côte d'Ivoire. Yeah. <laughs> Côte d'Ivoire. So uh, I went back, uh, but to the north. And uh, I fell in love with uh, the Senufo people uh, who, who live in that uh, uh, region. And in fact, uh, I wrote my first collection of poems, Laterite, which is Red Earth, um, when I was there. So um, one day uh, I met a publisher who was starting a collection of um, of books for children, for young people. And I, I wasn't going, I, I, I didn't have that in my mind, but because he asked me if I would be interested in writing for young people, I, 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 got, to, I got to it. And uh, so much so that the first uh, book that I wrote uh, was Lord of the Dance. And um, I illustrated the the album, and uh, that was the beginning of a, a long, long passion for uh, writing for young children. Uh, today, I write um, not just albums with illustrations. I also write for um, older age group. Uh, that means teenagers and even young young adults. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's 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 a that's a good compressed arc. I think I read somewhere that you uh, one of your parents was an artist, so I assume that you were surrounded by like art materials or something. Yes, I had two very very big influences in my in my in my growing up in my childhood. There was on one side my my father was very politically involved because he, he worked in government. And uh, my mother was an artist. So in the house, there was these two pools, you know, the artistic pool and the kind of political, more uh, socially conscious um, dimension. Yeah. I mean, if, if there is a thread, I would say in your work, there, the, the, you know, the socio-political element is very strong. Uh, you know, it's very easy to see why, say, the Radical Books Collective is attracted to you. I think you have a very radical literary imagination. Um, and I guess, uh, in a way, I would say that a lot of your works are concerned with sort of writing from below or writing about ordinary people. Um, yet, 
At the same time, when I hear about your background, I feel you're very cosmopolitan. You have access to many places in the world. You know, the the woke generation will say you have you're privileged. You know, yet you continue to stay focused uh, and gaze upon ordinary ordinary uh, people. And your topics are uh, very social justice uh, focused, very uh, politically oriented. How do you kind of you know, do may, both. May, maybe I can go back to my family again for that. Sure. Uh, uh, in the sense that uh, if you take my father, he was uh, from a, a village, a very small village uh, in the south of Côte d'Ivoire, uh, near the Ghanaian border. So I, I, I was very, very aware of the uh, differences of uh, in the levels of um, access. In, uh, between first the town, the city, and the village, and also the fact that uh, uh, people were living very, very um, modestly in, uh, in, in the uh, rural uh, areas. So, mm -hmm. And also you, you go to Abidjan, it's a big capital, but I mean, it's so many levels. It's easy to see that uh, uh, there's quite a lot of uh, poverty. And, and it's a question, I, uh, it's a question maybe I was always, I always had my eyes open. And also maybe, as I said, because my father came from such a, a modest uh, background. Um, and then on the side, on my mother's side, she also came from a small village, mm. but in Burgundy. Oh, wow. and, and her family was in the wine, wine, wine. They were wine merchants. Uh, Okay, mm -hmm. but she, the, her mother, my grandmother, was um, very religious. And so she was uh, very, very, very concerned about injustice and that sort of thing, you know. And uh, yeah, maybe so, so maybe it comes from there. Mm -hmm. But it has stayed with me. It's something you cannot really understand. It's difficult to explain. It's, it's just that maybe it's a form of sensitivity. It's just mm -hmm. the way you look at life. Uh, it's um, being, I have all, I know that I'm privileged, but my concern has always been, if you privilege, what do you do with that privilege? And right. that has always been in my mind, you know, okay, you've been lucky, but what do you do with that? And, and I think that, that, that is what drives me uh, to write these, uh, this, this book and to um, continue with the different themes. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're drawn to the concept of kind of committed literature or literature engagé, you know? Uh, do you think we live in a world where there is still place for this? Absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what, I, what I do think. Uh, even if you take the Negritude movement, which is not supposed to be literature engagée at first, but for me it is. It's just that they, 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 they achieve something extraordinary, is that they manage to create uh, a, a literature of, of, of high caliber and at the same time uh, fight for uh, political progress in, in, in Africa because they were fighting for independence, but they were writing literature. 
They were not writing pamphlets. They were not writing, you know, uh, didactical uh, pieces. They were really writing literature. And I admire that, although you can find all sorts of uh, reasons why, you know, they, they were not good for today, maybe. But I think for their time, they did what they had to do. And I, I, I really uh, value that. And you take people like Césaire, Fanon, I mean, it's extraordinary what they've been able to, to achieve. And for me, it's uh, literature engagée. But I would be more like Baldwin, for example. For, for me, he's, I was going to say, the best in the sense that uh, his way of, of, of writing is completely engaged. But there's something so uh, powerful, so lyrical, so human that I, I find it extremely, um, it inspires me a lot. So yes, I think we just maybe have to find another name, another term, but I think on the contrary, with all the crises we are living in, with that whole business of um, climate change, uh, the health crisis, uh, the economic crisis, the recession, and all that, we need a literature that's going to help us through that uh, uh, period. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree very much. Uh, to come back to the idea, say, of negative, I see why you're drawn to, uh, you know, the negative movement and uh, also the kind of formal experiments that took place. You are someone who... Uh, Thinks I imagine you think a lot about form, especially on the one hand, because you write in several genres. You're also a painter artist. So let's talk a little bit about form. So one thing easily that I can say is your books are often short and you're partial to what we would call lyrical fragments and episodes, then the long singular narrative, though you have that as well. Uh, why are you attracted to this literary approach? <laughs> I can't tell you why, but I am attracted to it in the sense that, remember, we said that I started with poetry. My, my first book was a collection of poems. And so I, I, I consider myself as a poet. So writing fragments for me is something that allows me to continue with the poetry because I like condensed language. I like condensed images. And so... Uh, that's uh, what I what I prefer. So I I have a tendency to prune my narratives as opposed to adding things or or, or segments uh, or lengthening the the narration. I, I I will always prune 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 to 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 the maximum. Mm -hmm. uh, and fragments is is because I think that in our life. Um, fragments are um, closer to our experience as human beings in the sense that our life is not linear. Mm -hmm. We think it is, but it's an illusion. It's the illusion of time. Yeah. But in reality, we have so much in our heads. Uh, yeah. We have, you know, different lives, different opportunities. Everything is, is, is like turning around our our heads. So, in fact, it's a kind of it's kind of trying to first say, look, our life is not linear, and second, it's uh, at the same time trying to put order 
mm-hmm. by 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 taking out the fragment the fragments of our life right but there's some there's something where you want to challenge the reader as well i think you hinted at this uh at the book club uh where i think some of us were saying that your ebola book uh is very impactful but at the same time you're not deeply connected to the characters we don't know their names and you 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 said your response was that it's important to kind of uh for the reader to challenge uh why they need certain information and things like that um you know so would you say you have a theory somewhere that descriptive long form storytelling uh there's a critique somewhere that you are you are making of the other way of writing very different from yours yeah. you see what i mean yes maybe maybe because i i i i like to give a lot of freedom to the to the reader i like yeah. the reader to do his or her interpretation of 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 the text of the of the story and for me i see uh reading and writing as a proactive and so i i, I trust the the readers and i i think that they i like i like to leave room for interpretation so yeah. as 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 we were saying in the book club if in the first um fragment in in the ebola a uh, book in the company of men uh, we 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 find a a doctor who who's under his um uh cosmonaut suit his space suit yeah. as i call it and of course you don't know who is under uh, a space uh, a suit is is for me it's symbolical of the fact that um you must uh, look at what people do not what they look like you must consider what people do not what they look like we spend too much time just saying uh, who's that person uh, what what does she look like uh, what color where does she come from well it's it's just and then we forget uh, to take time to see actually what is happening what is that person trying to do so mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I am against these uh, divisions that come right from the start. Yeah. You know, of course, you will understand after a while that that person is white or black, and as a joke, I say green or or, yes. or purple. But why I don't like it when right at the beginning you need that kind of certainty. I know that person. I can put a I can put a label on that person. It's, it's the labeling that I don't like. Yeah, maybe I'm uh, badly prepared to interview you, but I haven't read your children's books or your young adult books. Uh, how does this idea translate there too? Uh, you know, because do, don't children need explanation, or are children just more uh, free readers? How do you think about this within that? Yes, I I, I do play with color. but for example in some of my children's books you'll find an elephant that's pink or yeah. or, or um a, a giraffe that's green or a, a, a little boy that yellow who is yellow or something like that and sometimes i do play with uh, with colors but you see children are freer than adults because yeah. they don't have all these preconceptions 
and um, stereotypes in their heads. So you can do a lot of things with, with, with them and they will recognize what you're showing them, even if they're not like the conventional um, uh, picture that you would normally give them. And, yeah. and so that's also why it's so uh, rewarding uh, to uh, write with uh, young people is, is because they have that uh, openness of mind. Yeah. Which is credibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit more about uh, Company of Men. Uh, mm -hmm. In the Company of Men traces the story of Ebola through a host of human and non-human characters. And we asked you to make a reading list of things that, of books that inspired you as you were writing this book uh, for Africa as a country. And you said you were inspired primarily by oral literature, and this allowed you the freedom to go many places. And, uh, you know, and then because I was kind of reading, rereading some of your books, I remembered that in uh, L'Ombre d'Imana, Shadow of Imana, your book on Rwanda, there's a character who says, is Africa's orality a handicap to collective memory? We must write to give information some permanence. So there's a lot of debates, and these are old debates, perhaps, in oral or orality studies, oral literature studies, and that we want to respect orality, oral cultures, but there are limitations as we come up against modernity and the permanence of written um, culture. Just, you know, opening it up for any thoughts you have on, on these tensions. Mm, yeah. Well, when I wrote that um, uh, quote in... Uh, that sentence in in uh, shadow of uh, of Imana, the shadow of Imana, is is just because uh, you know we went there um, four years after the genocide, so it was very raw. It was it had you know it was it had just happened, and there was uh, also um, uh, a, a strong danger of denial, and so we we as as people who had gone to Kigali, who had gone to Rwanda to write about uh, post-genocide uh, Rwanda, we, we, we wanted to really write it down uh, uh, so that we could, um, we, we could um, tell the world what we had, uh, what we had uh, seen. So in that sense, uh, orality was, um, was not... Uh, um, an option. The, an option. It wasn't the immediate option. Today is different. Today, uh, we there are lots of books, lots of books written by uh, uh, Rwandan uh, writers, and also lots of uh, testimonies. Uh, one one of the healing process is to 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 have people talk about their trauma, talk about uh, what they experienced during the the genocide in order to, to make this um, a real and to talk ab about it and, and, and exchange uh, um, experiences because you, you, you cannot write everything. That's also what I realized, you cannot write everything. So maybe when, when I, with time, I realized that uh, uh, the, the strong value of orality, and maybe what I'm trying to do is be at the junction of writing and orality. Right. But in terms of oral tradition, I'm just using the technique 
of oral tradition. Of mm. course, a book is not oral, unless you start uh, reading it, which is also great. Uh, uh, I think audio books are becoming uh, right. very, very important. Yeah. Because they, you know. And also an example comes to my mind, the, the spoken word, the, the spoken word of poetry. Sure. What is happening? It's a revival of poetry because for a while poetry was stuck between the pages uh, and now it's back to the people. It's back to uh, saying it aloud and having a, a, a public to listen. So orality is, can do things that writing uh, cannot do. So I, I was very attracted by the technique uh, yes. of orality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to follow up and to kind of touch upon some of your other works, uh, you know, which I've read, which is uh, Queen Poku, also the Blind Kingdom, and uh, sometimes, and I and I see um, an attraction there again to kind of oral cultures and to rework and reinterpret these legends of queens and 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 queens um and you know i often find myself uh feeling impatient sometimes when we are reviving royalty and monarchs uh you know uh it's like you know beyonce is very attracted for example to like african royalty you know and i feel like I don't know how these radical imaginaries can be activated unless we kind of just drop the kingdoms and the royalty and the monarchy, you know. And I know that I, I'm not accusing you, but I know that you also no. write from below. But there are there are all these tensions that happen when one brings a figure, another queen figure or a king figure. How do you navigate all this? Well, you, the thing is that uh, you have to see those who bow to royalty and those who question royalty. I think I'm in the second category. I question royalty. That means I question power all the time. Yeah. And uh, what I did with Queen Poku was to question the le legend. And it's quite tricky because it's the myth of foundation. It's the myth of the foundation of the Baoule people from Côte d'Ivoire, and the Baolé people have been in power for, you know, since the beginning of the, the, the birth of the, of the nation. So they are very powerful people. So by, by questioning the very myth of their foundation, I was like shaking things yes. a little bit, but that's what interested me. And also uh, what interested me in the legend of uh, Poku was the fact that she was a woman yes. and that there are not that many royalties that are uh, women. And I wanted to say, look, this woman is supposed to be big, but in fact, she has no voice. Okay. And when you read the legend, the, the kind of uh, the basis of the legend, Poku has no voice. That means as a woman, she doesn't exist. She just has this gender but she's not a, a, a real uh, woman in the sense that, uh, for example, um, her sacrifice, the sacrifice of her, of, her, yeah, of her only child is like one line and that's it. And then we move on to the creation of the uh, kingdom, the Baule kingdom. So there were lots of things that I could say with this, uh, with this uh, legend, but always questioning power and also the manipulation of 
power. Uh, that means it was so obvious that the um, the myth of Poku was written or conceived by men. There yeah. was no way a woman could have come up with something like that. Uh, yeah. So my idea was to give her back her voice. Sure. Yeah. And and concerning um, the blind kingdom, it's yeah. exactly the same thing. I was saying. It's the kingdom of the blind in the sense that of people who refuse to see what's happening around them. So they're blind to the reality of, uh, of, 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 of life and, they, and, they, and they're stuck in their selfishness and, uh, and oppression mm -hmm. yeah, of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's just good to hear you talk about <laughs> talk about it. I know that you're writing from the other perspective and questioning power. That's absolutely true. Um, so I, coming to a final sort of uh, question, though, there might be follow-ups. So we are a collective that is attempting to confront kind of structural issues uh, in publishing. Uh, and, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, very little African writing has actually been published or celebrated. And I mean, in the mainstream commercial uh, sense, and it mm -hmm. also falls under the category of African literature, which often doesn't make a lot of sense given how huge and varied uh, the continent is. Um, how do you explain these limitations given the amount of writing stories and art that is actually produced on the African uh, continent what historically do you think has been the obstacle? The impediment? Well, yeah. Well, first, I want to say that uh, I have uh, no problem with the category African literature because okay. there's been a big debate, uh, you know, why African literature? It should be literature on its own. Why do you want to add African? I, I am, I've got, I don't understand the debate. And especially when I think of Japanese literature, Latin American literature, Russian literature, Chinese literature, why is it a problem uh, when we're talking about African literature? One, I think that um, it's mainly a commercial question. It's a commercial issue. Um, and it's a commercial issue within the Western world, the Western publishing industry, is uh, the idea that uh, if you carry the burden of African literature, then you, you, you can't be a commercial writer. I mean, somebody who's going to sell <clears throat> books. And, and, and so I, I, I think that it's, it's looking at the problem in the, in the wrong way. I think that first you have to recognize that it's an industry, it's about money, and that the Western publishing industry uh, is very protective of its territory first. That means uh, the, the, the Western publishing industry will always think about its own interests first. Second, it will absorb over literature as so long as they sell. And it's a kind of vicious circle, circle because um, if you don't uh, give enough visibility to people who are writing uh, not from inside uh, Europe or the Western world, but from, from abroad, then of course 
they're not going to sell. So, and then if they don't sell, then they're not going to be um, well positioned on the bookshelves, yeah. in, in bookshops. But there's another issue as well. And it, uh, it, it, it forces us to go back to, to Africa. We, we need to uh, develop uh, our literature in, in a more efficient way. I think that African literature has not uh, reached its potential very far from it because we, we, we need to develop the readership and we need to, to um, promote a culture of reading. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the work that we have to, to, to do. When, as African writers, we will have the, the weight of being recognized in our own countries, the rest will come more easily. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's tough. And I think this is where, just to argue with you, the category of African literature becomes uh, too quick, you know, because what works for a Kenyan readership may not work for Senegalese or, you know, it's just like, uh, it's just, and also historically, we're thinking of African literature often being analyzed for its sociological, anthropological themes in in academic uh, work. But who does that? Who does that? It's because even the critics are are in the majority uh, from the Western uh, world, Western So, so uh, it's, 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 it's all the 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 same thing. I I think we haven't we haven't spent enough time to see what people want to read, and uh, and why they want to read those those books. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think publishing structures have to be uh, strengthened, cultural institutions, and it does feel the last couple of decades that it has been changing. No, yes, Do you feel that. Absolutely, it's evolving a, a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good things happening. Um, yeah. I think the um, educational sector is still uh, the main uh, sector, the main, you know, money-making, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, sector. So uh, I, I think once uh, publishers will realize that you can you can survive and thrive with literature, then, then it will be fine, it will be fine. But yeah. I mean, we have so many challenges that sometimes this is not understood as a, as a priority. Whereas I think that um, developing a strong culture of, uh, of, of reading is, is very important for the development of a country. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. I think it's hopeful it's happening. Um, so I will, I think we can, uh, I would I'll just say thank you. I think this was very illuminating. You told us a lot. And thank you again for, for coming today. Well, thank you very much for having me. <laughs>